police calling all cars, attention all cars, a hold up at the Bureau of Power and Light. That's all. Rolls and clips. Ten grand? 
Sure, that's a lot of dough. If you come out of it alive... Oh, you'll come out of it alive, all right. Well, what's your proposition? Well, I'm not convinced you're interested. Sure, I'm interested. Will you run a risk? That is, a little risk. For ten grand? <laughs> sure, spill it. Okay. It's a payroll holder. Mm, sounds good. How big is the payroll? What do you care? Ten grand's your cut. Yeah, but listen... What's I... the matter? Isn't ten grand enough? Sure. But what's it all about? And the less you know, the better off you are. I'm running all the risks. <laughs> okay. That's fair enough. All right. Now, I'll draw you a diagram of the layout. Here's Hill Street, see? Yeah. And here's Broadway. Uh-huh. All right. Now, at 7 a.m. on the morning the payroll goes out, we come in the Hill Street entrance here. And we go upstairs and walk over to the Broadway side and down to the second floor landing, which is here, see? Yeah, go ahead. All right. Now, we've got green icing glass eye shades on like we were clerks. Yeah. We wait on this second floor landing until we see the cashier come in. Then we go down to the clerk's desk and pretend we're working. Yeah. And when we see the cashier open the safe to get out the payroll, we stick them up. Get it? Hey, how do you know so much about this layout? Well, I ought to know. I work down there. Are you sure this is the morning the payroll goes out? Listen, don't you think I've got that old set? Yeah, but are you sure? And I wouldn't be here if I wasn't. Okay. Give me that box of ammunition. I've got a long walk on. Oh, my God, what's the matter? He's just not left at the apartment. Oh, you damn fool. How are we going to hold up a payroll without bullets in our gas? Well, wait a minute. Let me think. Listen, these cashiers are scared to death of a holdup. We can bluff them. How? Well, here's some brown paper on this desk. Now, wait a minute. Brown paper? What do you want with brown paper? Oh, wait a minute. What are you doing? Here. Now, tear this into pieces and stuff the chambers with it. Yeah, that's the idea. Oh. Now, plug it in pretty far. I guess. Yeah, that's great, yeah. Looks like cartridges, see? Now, give me some. Uh-huh. Well, how long will it be before the cashier gets here? Not long. Look, Mac, how's this gun look? Swell. Just like the real thing. But what if they call our bluff? They won't. They're scared, I tell you. Okay, I'll take your word for it. So it's the Bureau of Pound Light we're holding up, huh? That payroll ought to be worth something. It's worth just ten grand to you. No, I know, I know. The cut's okay with me. Right down. Here comes the cashier. Okay. Now, follow me down to the desk and act like you was a clerk. Sure. Here we go. Hey, who's this coming? Hessel, he's the head cashier. Oh, yeah? yeah take these desks here, grab a pen, pull out a book or anything, and start writing. Okay. Look, here comes Blockway, the assistant cashier. Yeah? Hessel's opening the time safe now. Uh-huh. He's got it open. Yeah, that's our cue. You cover Blockway, I'll get Hessel. Come on. I wonder where that watchman is, Louis. He should have been here a half hour. The watchman won't be here for a while. Hey, what is it? Oh, hold up. Now, you two men get over there by the cash window and look like you're working. Oh, we'll do no. Oh, yes, you will. We mean business. Now, get over there. My partner here will be behind the door of the safe with his gun trained on your back. Act natural or else. Keep your eye on him, pal. Sure. I'm going to clear out this safe. Hey, you. Cut out that noise. You want your head blown off? What's the matter? This guy's trying to attract the attention of the janitor out there in the hall. Give it to him if he doesn't stop. You bet I will. Paper bullets? Jeez, I forgot all about that. Well, don't worry, I got all the dough in the plate. We're just about through. Good. Now let's trust up our friends here and be on our way. Okay. The straps for it, see? Yeah. Now listen, you guys. We're going to tie up for a while. Then you'll be okay so long as you keep quiet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Come on, turn around. That's better. There, I guess they can't use their hands much. Got one of them rubber balls. Yeah, here you are. No, no, don't go. Sorry, but we're not taking any chances on you walking too soon. Don't mind the taste of that rubber. It's a new ball and quite clean. Hey, this other guy's stuff, too. All right, let's go. 
Within a few moments, the bound cashiers are discovered and untied by employees arriving for the day's work. The police are notified, and Detective Lieutenants Pruitt, Garrett, and Kopitek are detailed to investigate the scene of the crime. They question the victims closely. Now, Mr. Fessel, will you kindly tell us just what happened? Well, I came in at 7.30 to get the payroll ready, and I passed two men at that desk over there. That one by the cashier's cage? Yes, that's the one. Go on. Well, they both wore eye shades, and they were bending over some papers, so I didn't pay any attention to them. I just thought they were a couple of night clerks finishing up their work. And then what happened? Well, when I got the safe opened and Brockaway here came in to help me with the payroll, these two men walked through the cage and held us up. They made us go over to the window there like we were working. And I tried to signal the janitor by jingling a letter spike, and the one with his gun on us threatened to blow my brains out. Who were you trying to signal? The janitor. Hmm. He was out there in the hall cleaning up the drinking fountains. It was only about ten feet away all during the time it was happening. Where is the janitor? Here I is, mister. I right here. What do you know about this? Uh, I don't know nothing, mister. Didn't you see anybody in here? No, sir. I see these two gentlemen here. Then I looked up and I didn't see them. I, I don't know nothing else. And you didn't hear anything? No, sir. I didn't hear nothing. Well, how come? It seems strange you wouldn't notice anything unusual. I don't know, mister, but I got my own troubles, you know. I got misery, I have. I got misery in my back and things with something foul, you know. The okay, but don't go away. I may want to talk to you again. Yeah, sir. I ain't going no place. I got a lot of stuff to do to clean around here. Now I'll be right here in the general facility. Now, uh, Mr. Fessel, what do these men look like? Well, they wore old clothes, sort of shabby. And they both had green eye shades. One of them had adhesive tape over the bridge of his nose. He seemed to be the boss. Yes, and he was about medium height and slender. And he had sort of a hollow face, wouldn't you say, Pesson? Yes, I guess that's right. And, oh, yes, he wore a wig, a black wig. I noticed it when he was tying me up. How about the other man? He's the one that tied me up. He was older and fuller face. He had black hair. Did he wear a wig? Mm, well, I don't know. Hmm. Not much to go on. Hey, Jim. Here's the gags they used. Oh, yes. Uh, we threw them down on the desk when they untied it. Hmm. Rubber balls. Yes, they forced them into our mouths and taped them in. Pretty effective gags, all right. And, Jim, I found out that the payroll guard hasn't shown up yet. That's right. He wasn't here when I came in this morning. Who is he? His name's Hank Schaefer. He's night watchman at the power plant out near Slauson. On paydays, he comes in early in the morning and acts as guard. And he wasn't here this morning? No, and he hasn't shown up yet. It looks suspicious to me. Ed, you better get hot on this, Schaefer. Run him down as soon as you can. Sure thing, Jim. Now, gentlemen, the next step is at headquarters. You come along with me, we'll go over there and look through the mug book. Maybe we've got your eye shade robber's portraits in there. Very well, Lieutenant. We'll be glad to. Let's go, then. And this way, please. Yeah, uh, Mr. Fessel! Yeah, Mr. Fessel! Uh, what's happened? I, I heard there's been no robber here. What, what's happened here? Oh, Schaefer. You're a little late, Hank. Yeah, yeah, I know, but, but but I couldn't help it. This is the guard I was telling you about, Lieutenant. Mm-hmm. Although he's not much of a guard. While you were taking your time getting here, Schaefer, two men took $73,000 out of the safe. $73,000? My God, the name of But you should hear mine, Thomas. You should hear what happened to me. We'd like to. What did happen to you? Well, well, I, I was driving down here from the power plant at 7 o'clock, like I'm always doing on paydays. On that uh, 95 and Central Avenue, two men in the big black sedan forcing me to curb. 
Then they jumped out and pulled a gun on me. Oh, they were real tough guys, too. Oh, and they made me get in the back of the car, and they throw a blanket over me. And then they drove me way out here in Orange County. Oh, and then they threw me out of the car, and, and I was away. And I was right back as quick as I could here. What was the license number of the car? Uh, uh, what? The license number. I call it, I, I didn't notice in the excitement. You, you didn't notice the license no, number? I, that's right, I... Uh, Schaefer, that doesn't sound like a very satisfactory explanation of your absence. No, yeah, but that's true, Mr. Bessel. You, you don't think for a minute... We don't I'm... think anything, Schaefer. Our job is to find out. You have to come along to headquarters with well, us. But I did nothing to do with anything here. I'm telling you the truth. on his fire. Schaefer is naturally the object of great suspicion, but an intensive search of his background failed to result in the discovery of any criminal record. Repeated questioning always results in the same story. And finally, for lack of any proof to the contrary, Schaefer is placed beyond suspicion. Tessel and Brockway scan the mug books for pictures of the men who held them up, but their search is in vain. Underworld characters and even employees of the Bureau of Power and Light are kept under surveillance to determine whether they make any large deposits of money or any unusual purchases. Circulars bearing the meager description of the bandits and pictures of the paraphernalia used to assist identifications by means of modus operandi in case of future crimes elsewhere are distributed over the entire United States. But in spite of all this police activity, four months pass without the slightest clue to the identity of the robbers. The opinion goes around headquarters that the job was pulled by Eastern gangsters who had left town immediately after the robbery. Then, on January 20th, 1928, a matter of routine police work comes to the attention of Lieutenant Kopitek that is destined to play an important part in unraveling the snarl of this baffling case. Detective Bureau, Lieutenant Kopitek. I want to speak to someone about something much suspicious. What is it, ma'am? Well, about a month ago, a young fellow rented a house next to me. Yeah? Well, he's acting mighty funny. What's he been doing? Well, yesterday, I saw him out of the kitchen window changing the license plates on his car. Well, that's nothing suspicious. Lots of people are changing their 27 plates to new plates at this time of the year. Now, wait a minute, young man, until I finish. Oh, I beg your pardon. Go ahead. Well, yesterday, he took off the 27 plate and put on the 28 plate. Yes. And today off the 28th place and put on another pair. Well, that does sound a little funny. Well, I think you'd better look into it. We will, right away. Now, if you'll kindly give me the address. Lieutenant Kopitek, Pruitt, and Starrett lose no time in getting out to the Highland Park District and interviewing their informant in person. Now, you understand, Lieutenant, I don't want to be mixed up in this thing. I'm just doing my duty as I see it. This young man's actions look very suspicious to me, and this is a peaceable neighborhood, and we don't want any strange goings-on here. Well, what do you mean, goings-on? Have you noticed anything else? No, but you never can tell why the next thing you know, why he might be having drinking parties and hurry is visiting him. Well, what's this young man's name? Well, the Iceman tells me his name is Craig, see? And he's up to no good, I can tell you. Why, I went over there to pay a neighborly call after he moved in, and he all but slammed the door in my face. Oh. Is he home now? Well, I tell you, I ain't seen him go out today. Oh, very well, then. We'll pay him a visit. But now leave me out of it. I don't want to cause no trouble to no one. 
the front entrance. Well, 
Well, Bob told me he bought a diamond ring for me and that he was going to give it to me. Thank you, Miss Campbell. That's all for the present. Boy, you... You... Oh, you didn't have to bring her into this. I couldn't help it, Bob. We've got to get to the bottom of this. And that's nothing to what she'll suffer if you go on the stand and try to prove innocence against the evidence that we've got on you. Think what the publicity will do. Think how the whole town will talk about her. You know what they'll call her? They'll call her a bandit's mall. Now, is that the sort of a thing to do to a sweet girl like that? A girl who has loved you and had faith in you? Because you've made a mistake, Bob. Do you think it's fair to drag her name through the mud? Now, do you? Okay, Captain. You win. I'll confess. I'll plead guilty. I'll do anything you want me to. Peter's confession names Andrew McDonald as his assistant in the robbery, and William Thompson and Harry Art as the two men who kidnapped Schaefer, the watchman. For their participation, McDonald had received $10,000, and Thompson and Art, a thousand apiece. Following the holdup, Peters, who was on his vacation at the time, had spent a week in $200 in San Francisco, had then returned to his desk at the Bureau of Power and Light, remaining at work for six weeks to avert suspicion. He had deposited $5,000 of the money in seven different banks under false firm names and had buried the rest. It was this buried money he was trying to dry out when the officers arrested him. As soon as the police learned their names, Captain Slayton and Cahill speeded Thompson to Nard's home and placed them under arrest. They are questioned at headquarters and eventually admit having kidnapped the watchman and receiving a payoff for their services. Meanwhile, a Los Angeles police car, bearing Lieutenant Stewart and Starrett, screams through heavy coastline fog south to San Isidro, where, according to replies to their statewide teletype, McDonald is publishing a newspaper. They arrest him just as he is hurriedly dressing for territory to fleeing across the border. He is rushed back to Los Angeles, fingerprinted, and brought before Captain Cahill for questioning. McDonald, how much did you get out of that Bureau of Power and Light holdup? I don't know what you're talking about. Wasn't it $10,000? I don't know nothing about a holdup. But your employer on that job, Bob Peters, said that you got ten grand for your part of it. Listen, I don't know what you're talking about. No? Well, let me see. You got ten grand, and a couple of weeks later, you bought a $5,000 interest in a San Isidro newspaper, and then deposited 4000 in a Tijuana bank. I won that four grand across the border. You did? Well, well, that's the first time I ever heard of anyone winning $4,000 in Tijuana. Well, I did. You're to be congratulated, McDonald. But how do you explain this? Mr. Pestle and Mr. Brockway, the men you held up, both recognize you. Are they nuts? Yeah? And how do you explain this? Here are your fingerprints on the car that you rented for a getaway. And here are your hairy wrong fingerprints. And they match. Listen, fingerprints ain't any good for identification. Well, that hasn't been our experience. And now here's another interesting similarity. The way your handwriting on the police blotter and the handwriting on this auto rental contract tally. I tell you, I didn't have anything to do with this holdup. And yet your pals, Peter, Thompson, and Art, all implicate you in their confession. I never heard of them before. It's a lousy frame-up, the whole thing. Somebody's trying to oh, railroad me. McDonald, calm down. You're as guilty as the devil, you know it. Uh... 
But MacDonald insists on his innocence. He refuses to cooperate with the police in the restitution of the stolen money, and when charged with his crime, he pleads not guilty. Peters, Thompson, and Arts, on the other hand, cooperate to the fullest with the police. As a result of the $73,000 stolen, $48,000 in cash, and $5,000 in property was returned. Peters, Thompson, and Arts, pleading guilty, are charged with second-degree robbery, and MacDonald is charged with first-degree robbery. After the testimony, the men file into the courtroom to receive the sentence of the judge. Robert Peters, William Thompson, and Harry Art. Stand and face the court. You men have been found guilty of second-degree robbery, and it is now my duty to sentence you. But your cooperation with the authorities following your arrest has been commendable. And in view of your attitude, this court is lenient and sentences you to serve from one year to life in San Quentin prison. Andrew McDonald, stand and face the court. McDonald, before I pass sentence on you, have you anything to say? Sure I have, Judge. I've been framed. These three rats here put me on the spot. I didn't have a thing to do with this robbery. You still insist you are innocent? Of course I'm innocent. I'm being railroaded. McDonald, your attitude astonishes me. Throughout this whole proceeding, you have failed completely to cooperate with the authorities. In the face of damning evidence, clear, unimpeachable evidence of your guilt, you still claim you are innocent. I do. You seem to be asking the court to be severe on you. Ah, go ahead. Spirit, you can't scare me. I'm trying not to, McDonald, but I intend that you shall serve as an example to other lawbreakers who in the future may want to take such a stubborn attitude as you have. Therefore, Andrew McDonald, I sentence you to serve from seven years to life in San Quentin prison. <laughs> in the criminal. Someplace along the line, the perpetrator, perpetrator of the most perfect crime will make a mistake, will slacken in his vigilance, and then he is lost. These mistakes, these lack-ups of vigilance, are often, as not, born of a guilty conscience, had Peters not been so worried about detection that he changed license plates twice in two days, our job in solving this crime would have been much harder. We in the police department have many opportunities to observe the truth of the old adage, give a man enough rope and hang himself. Thank you, Inspector Hawkey. Statements that are merely made and not backed up are valuable. Statements that have undeniable facts behind them are worth your consideration. You'll never hear vague promises or semi-scientific claims made for Rio Grande cracked gasoline with tetraethyl lead. For it is the policy of the Rio Grande Oil Company to stick only to facts in their advertising. So when you hear the statement, for police car performance, use Rio Grande cracked gasoline, you know that it is true. And here's the reason. In 
the great southwest, where Rio Grande products are sold, more police cars, fire engines, ambulances, motorcycles, and other emergency equipment use Rio Grande cracks than all other brands combined. These summer days are hard on most lubricating oils. However, you need never worry about burned-out bearings. If you've got Sinclair Pennsylvania or Sinclair Opaline motor oil in your crankcase, these oils are extra refined, giving them longer life, even under terrific temperatures. They are sold only in tamper-proof, extra-major cans, yet cost no more. Rio Grande has prepared for your information a complete list of forthcoming cases to be broadcast on Calling All Cars. May we suggest that you drive into your neighborhood Rio Grande service station tomorrow and ask for the Rio Grande radio log. It's free. Robeson. This is Frederick Lindsley saying good night for the Rio Grande Oil Company.